Would you please take your Bibles, flip them open to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4. We come to really the final transition in the letter as Paul closes out this section of the letter that began in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, really as far back as chapter 2 verse 20 where he began to flesh out his uh, teaching from the first two chapters and call us to holy and right living, uh, to live as new creatures in Christ. Uh, we've noted the last several weeks that that principle is taught all over the Bible. Paul teaches it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we're new creatures in Christ. That's what it means to be saved. Jesus alludes to it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We're born again, that means we're new we, we are remade. And then Paul alludes to it here in many other places, but here in Colossians chapter 3 as uh, putting off certain things, putting on other things. And he's talked about uh, this new life in Christ, living under the Lordship of Christ, both in our minds and in our relationships and in our conduct. Uh, we set our minds on heaven. We put off worldliness. We put on godliness. We relate to one another differently as Christians. We relate and live in our homes differently. And now as we come to chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, he's closing that section out by highlighting how we live this new life in Christ in relationship to unbelievers. How do we conduct ourselves as new creatures in a fallen world? And that's the question we always have, right? How do we live out this faith in a place that hates the faith we live? How do we exist as children of God in a place that hates our Father who is God? <clears throat> well, this is how Paul begins to close his letter to the Colossian Christians. He's been writing, warning them of false teachers. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, it's kind of the centralized point against the false teachers. You've died to their teaching. You've died to their works-based system of thinking. So don't listen to them. And yet, he doesn't want them to avoid or be so scared of false teachers to the point of avoiding interaction with others. He would still have these believers know that they have a responsibility to engage their fellow Colossian citizens with the truth of the gospel. And so he begins to flesh that out, mentioning what I think is three things in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. Three things about how we are to relate to the world around us as new creatures. And we are to relate to the world around us, aren't we? After all, we're the only ones who have the message of the gospel. And the world is desperately in need of it. It is dying. It is broken. It is rebelling. And we have the only solution. So today's text I find to be incredibly important for us. Let's look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Read the text and come back and walk through it. Paul writes and he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ 
on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Everything kind of revolves around this reference in verse 5 to outsiders, those who aren't in the church, which implies the importance of belonging to the church. Those who have the approval of the church as, so far as they can tell, being born again children of God. They're new creatures. The church grants their approval of that. Those who don't have the approval of the church, so far as the church can tell, are outsiders. They're unbelievers. They're lost. And Paul's concerned with how these Colossian Christians relate to those who are outside their Christian fellowship. In other words, you are the people of God set in the middle of the city, and yet you don't hide amongst yourselves. You still reach out to the outsiders. You still engage those who don't belong to your fellowship. You still reach out to those who won't be hearing this letter or reading this letter or know Christ. So he first begins by telling them you must prepare with prayer. If we're going to be a people who engage the world around us, we have to prepare with prayer. John MacArthur gives a pretty good summary of the importance of prayer. Commenting on this very verse, he writes and says, it is fitting that Paul begins with prayer because it is the most important speech the new man can utter. Prayer is the strength of the believer's fellowship with the Lord and the source of his power against Satan and his angels. Through prayer, believers confess their sin, offer praise to God, call on their sympathetic high priest, and intercede for each other. Prayer from a pure heart is to be directed to God, consistent with the mind and will of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ and for the glory of the Father. We could spend hours expounding what MacArthur says there. All of it is scriptural. But it's a good overview. And, and we could summarize it by saying prayer is our lifeline as Christians. It's, it's our link to fellowshipping with God and being in communion with God. It's a necessity for us. You and I can do nothing apart from prayer. We're entirely dependent upon it. And it becomes readily obvious as we consider the fact that we're supposed to live in this world that is so vastly different from the teaching of our Lord. The Scriptures tell us to live in this world and yet to be distinct from it. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus is praying for His disciples and He says, I do not ask that you, Father, take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That prayer tells us a lot. Christ doesn't desire that we be removed out of the world. He desires that we still be in the world and amongst the world, in the midst of the world. He desires, though, that we be faithful, free from the evil one, holy and righteous. Why does God still have us in this world? We know the answer. The Great Commission. To glorify God by bearing witness to the salvific work of Christ. 
And so even Jesus Himself tells us, I don't want you removed from the world, but I want you to be distinct from it. And therein we see the importance of preparing ourselves by way of prayer, right? Because that is an impossible task for us. Not only do you and I contribute to the sinful corruption of the world with our own sinful tendencies, but we are incredibly susceptible to the sinful tendencies of the world. It takes just a fraction of time to be swallowed up into the black hole of worldliness. It takes just a moment before some song, some movie, some remark, some joke, some book, some commercial, some something, advertisement, to grab hold of our fleshly nature and lunge us into the quicksand of sin. So we have to be a people of constant prayer, don't we? We have to be a people on guard, a people preparing ourselves regularly, seeking the Lord and asking for His help. Help us, God, to live in this world as You have us living in it, as You desire us to live in it, yet without being tainted by the world, distinct from it, without being stained by it, in the midst of it, without succumbing to it, interacting with it, without becoming like it. Prayer is important. So Paul begins in verse 2 by calling these Colossian Christians to a habitual prayerful life. In other words, you should make prayer a habit of your life. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. That word continue implies that you have been doing it, but you must keep doing it. In fact, it must now be your new normal as new creatures in Christ. Prayer is the new normal for you and I. It's the standard feature of the Christian life. Steadfast means to persevere, to commit, to be devoted, to be unmovable, immovable and unwavering in prayer. Make it a normal, habitual practice, O Christian, to regularly be an unwavering prayer. Paul has said something very similar elsewhere. This one might be a little bit more memorable for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. It's the same principle, same Same lesson being taught here. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Let it be a normal practice, a normal discipline for your life. If anything is to be said about you in your new relation to God, it is to be said that you are a people of prayer. You delight in fellowshipping with God. You seek to fellowship with God and you realize I can do nothing apart from fellowshipping with God in prayer. Paul here is not referring to intensity of prayer, but lifestyle of prayer. He's not saying pray harder. He's saying pray more. Martin Luther says or said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And he's right. The second thing Paul has to say about prayer is also in verse 2. He says, be watchful in it, which is an interesting word to associate and connect with prayer. 
It's an action-oriented word. It implies something serious that is done in and through the moment of prayer. The word watchful means to be alert, awake, ready. Which tells us that as we pray, we're not doing nothing. We're doing something. Something very important. Something important for our own souls. Now we do have the question, what does Paul mean when he says be watchful? He could mean be on guard. Be alert, be ready, be awake so that you would be on guard. There's a spiritual warfare that's raging all around you. Temptation creeps up at every turn. Be on guard. He could use it as a defensive strategy for the Christian. Or he could mean it as he does in other places and as other places in the New Testament mean it. Be watchful for the second coming of Christ. Be looking and waiting for the return of our Lord. But as you live in this world, realize Christ is coming back soon, so be watchful. Or he could mean be watchful for evangelistic opportunities. That as you live, pray. Habitually pray. And be watchful for the opportunity to share the gospel. Or, he could mean all three. A general sense of be watchful. And that seems to be how he writes it. In a general way, in whatever way you can be watchful, be watchful in prayer. Don't try to navigate this life on your own. Be watchful in your relationship with Christ. Be awake. Be ready. Be alert. Now I think for us it would be important for me to spend a little bit of time to highlight how we're watchful in terms of a defensive strategy and the importance of that. Because as I said earlier, it's so easy to be tainted by the ways of the world. And so as Christians, we ought to be praying for the purpose of of being watchful against the temptations of the world. Asking God, help us to not be stained. Help us to not be like the world. Help us to not succumb to the world. As we wait for You to come, Christ, help us to be distinct. We find a parable that alludes to that in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is talking about a master and a servant. The master, he says, wouldn't have gone to sleep if he'd have known what hour the thief was coming. And then he goes on to say, the slave wouldn't have ignored the coming of the master if he'd have known at one hour the master was coming. But instead, the slave ignored the master was coming and started to beat the other slaves and drink and eat and get drunk. And that master came and dealt with him harshly. I think the same lesson can be applicable here. As you and I live in this world waiting for the coming of Christ, which could come at any moment, let us be watchful in it. Waiting for our master, hoping to be found faithful and holy and godly and righteous, not giving in to the tendencies of the world. Church, the simple truth is this. 
we will not be effective witnesses for Christ if we're not seeking righteousness and guarding against the influence the world has. And if we don't do that in prayer, we will fail. Thirdly, in verse 2, Paul tells us to be people who pray with thanksgiving. He says, have thanksgiving in it. He could refer to the prayer or he could refer to the being watchful. Be watchful and in it with thanksgiving or be praying and in it with thanksgiving. Either way, thanksgiving takes a central stage in our relationship with God and our living in this world. And it does all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the Bible tells us thankfulness is of such importance that it's one of the singular ways we can avoid slipping into false teaching and slipping into temptation. That's because thankfulness rightly aligns our perspectives, doesn't it? It keeps our affections properly placed upon Christ. Thankfulness, a heart of gratitude, eliminates pride. It exalts God. It expresses our dependency upon God. It tells a watching world that every good thing that comes in our lives is from a good, sovereign ruler. So in that regard, thankfulness is both a witness and a deterrent. A witness when we acknowledge that everything comes from God who is Lord of all things and a deterrent when we realize every good thing we have comes from God. I owe Him my everything. Paul tells us to be a people constant in prayer, specifically prayer of thanksgiving. Remembering it's a joy and a privilege to know God. A joy and a privilege to share the gospel. A joy and a privilege to continue to relate to God. A joy and a privilege to converse with God, commune with God, communicate with God. So he writes, he says, be constantly praying, be watchful, and be thankful. Those are soul necessary things to live in the midst of this world. In other words, you will not live a faithful Christian life in the midst of a falling world unless you're constantly praying, being watchful, and being thankful. As he moves on to verse 3 and 4, he shifts gears a little bit. And he's still talking about prayer, this time prayer for himself. And as we consider it, it means we should be praying for the advancement of the gospel. It's the most proactive part of our prayer life. In other words, we're not just sitting idly by. We're going on the offensive strategy. We're not just defensive in prayer trying to avoid sin. We're offensive. We're on the offense trying to take the gospel to the world. And that's reflected in Paul's need here that he expresses. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. These are the same things we should be praying for ourselves and for each other. Praying and asking God, please open to us a door for the Word. That request highlights a few things. It tells us that we can do nothing apart from God. It tells us we need God to go before us. That if we labor apart from prayer, we labor fruitlessly. 
that it is God who must go forth and prepare hearts of the people to receive the word. It also tells us that we pray for the word to be received. The emphasis in his request is not that God would open a door to them, a door of opportunity, but that God would open a door for the word, an opportunity for the word to take root. And that's an important distinction to be made and something we need to consider significantly. Because oftentimes we're guilty of, of sitting back idly and praying for God to give us an opportunity. In fact, most of us have prayed that way, haven't we? God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel today. Nothing inherently wrong with that prayer, except that it trains us to think that we aren't to be evangelistic unless God provides this massively obvious opportunity. Well, the truth of Scripture is that every person and every moment is an opportunity for the gospel. And so the point that Paul prays for here and the request that he makes is not for an opportunity for himself to share the gospel. It's that he might be the witness of the gospel being received. God, open a door for the gospel to be received, for the word to be received. He's not concerned with his reception. After all, he tells us he's in prison. He obviously is not super concerned with his reception. He's concerned with the word being received. So he says, pray for us. And pray first that God would open to us so we can witness and be a part of the Word being received. Open a door for the Word that people might believe. And then he says, pray that we would declare the mystery of Christ. These are wonderful things to be praying for regarding ourselves, regarding the church, regarding each other. Pray that when I open my mouth, I speak Christ. I declare the mysteries of Jesus. Not about Jesus, but of Jesus Himself. The resurrected Messiah, who is God Himself, come to save us. Which we know the Bible tells us is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jew. But help me God to declare it nonetheless. It's a mystery to them, but you revealed it to us. Let us share it to reveal it to them. Which explains his next request in verse 4. Pray that I may make it clear. Here is the man who wrote the most of the New Testament. The most in the New Testament. He traveled around the known world at the time, had tremendous amounts of influence. His faithfulness was off the charts. He instructs us through God's providence some 2,000 years later. And yet, what does he ask of his fellow brothers and sisters? Help me to share Christ clearly. This is the heart of a humble apostle saying, I need help even to speak the Word of Christ. I have no power in myself. I have, I have no ability on my own. I'm, I'm dependent. I need you to pray for me to be clear as I talk. He even re re recognizes that as his responsibility. Verse 4, pray that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. In 1 Corinthians 9, I believe it's verse 16. He even says, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. This is his heartbeat. 
Not the puffing up of himself, not the furthering of his agenda, not the furthering of his kingdom. His heartbeat is to make Christ known and to make Christ known clearly. And for people to receive that word of Christ. Why? Why is Paul so concerned with this? Well, every believer here this morning should be screaming in their heart the answer to that question. Because Christ is worthy. And because Christ saves. And because Christ has saved us. Because we were once dead in our sins and have been made alive by the mercy and love of God through Jesus. That's why we beg God for His Word to be received. For a door for His Word to be opened. That's why we beg God that He would help us to declare the mystery of Christ. That's why we beg God to help us to speak clearly so that people might hear and know and believe and be saved. Because we first have been saved. Because we first have been captivated by Jesus. Because we first have been moved and touched in our own hearts by the glorious truth of salvation in Christ. This prayer is not some profound prayer of a profound apostle. It's the humble desire of every born again Christian. It's the humble pleading with God. For something that every single one of us should be concerned about. How are you and I to live this new life in the world? How are you and I as new creatures in Christ to engage the lost around us? We are to have a certain kind of relationship with lost people around us. How are we to have that relationship? It's first by preparing ourselves in our own hearts in prayer. Constantly praying. Constantly being watchful. Constantly being thankful and constantly praying for the advancement of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, in verse 5, <clears throat> Paul's concerned with our conduct towards outsiders. He tells us to walk in wisdom. Walk is synonymous in the scriptures with live, live in wisdom. The way we prepare ourselves in prayer should translate to the way we conduct ourselves in this life. And in this life,